Have you ever felt like someone was watching what you were doing on your computer? It's a little paranoid, I know, but sometimes it just feels like every key I type is being looked at. Hell, I used to wonder sometimes if I should just open up Notepad and type, I know you're watching, and just see what happens. Alright, maybe I was never really that extreme, but I think we've all felt that way before. Maybe we saw a pop-up or something that disappeared quickly on our screen. Maybe something just didn't feel right about your machine today. Most of the time, it's nothing. But what if it wasn't? What if some mythical group actually was sitting on top of the mountain that is your machine? At the peak of what could be called a Mount Olympus of personal data? What could they do? Well, in the late 2000s and early 2010s, this wasn't just some myth. I'm John Cordes, and today, I'm taking you on a hike up Mount Olympus itself, and we're going to talk about a malware that was considered one of the biggest issues we'd seen up until that point. We're going to have some words about Zeus. I want to start with a little story I found courtesy of a news report on the situation. We're going to start our journey in 2010, in a town in southern Massachusetts called Dartmouth. Now, Dartmouth is a smaller town and home to one of the state's universities. It's a nice place and full of decent people. One of these people is a woman named Joan Hallwood, who worked for the town's fire department. She wasn't a full-time employee, she just worked from home part-time doing payroll and expense balancing. Honestly, the first surprising thing to me about this whole story is the fact that she was working from home in 2010. But that's besides the point, because Joan was good at what she did. Until one morning, she signed on and noticed that her home computer that she was working on was, in her words, acting up. She had been experiencing latency issues, slow connections, and it had even crashed a few times. When she realized that she wasn't going to be able to get to the point where she could log into the fire department's account on the bank website, she just decided to go straight to the source and call them. In her initial discussions with the bank, they were only able to indicate to her that there didn't seem to be anything wrong with her account, as they'd seen the wire transfers that she'd recently made. There was only one problem here. She didn't make any wire transfers. By the time she actually could log in, she was able to identify that six transactions in total had taken a toll of about $400,000 out of the fire department's account putting it almost down to no money remaining. For reference, according to her, that was about half of the annual budget for the fire department. And at this point, she still didn't know what happened, who did it, or why. I can't imagine how that must have felt for her. I think I'd have had a panic attack in that situation, but as it turned out, she wasn't alone. This wasn't just happening to her. Across the world, other institutions were being hit by the same problem, and this wasn't the first, nor would it have been the last. In fact, by this point, it had been estimated that over 3.6 million machines in the United States had been infected with whatever was ruining Jones' day. Some of the other places that had been hit, besides the Dartmouth Fire Department, well, it didn't seem like there was much rhyme or reason to who was targeted. Individual people were hit, a bakery in Chicago, a Catholic diocese in Des Moines, Iowa, they lost $700,000 and a contractor for the Michigan Defense Agency, they lost $5.2 million. Those are just some of the people that were targeted by this. All in all, by this point, it was estimated that around 70 million US dollars had been stolen by malicious actors in the case. 
And according to FBI Executive Assistant Director Sean Henry, it was all by the same group. So that leaves us with a few questions now. What did this? How does it work? And who did this? Let's start with the what of it all. This is where we get to the namesake of the episode because the malware that did this was called the Zeus malware. Zeus pulled just about every trick you can imagine to get the information it needed to operate. The primary goal of the malware itself was to steal banking information. But before I tell you how it did that, I want to lay one thing out for you in terms of what the security landscape looked like at this point. I want you to think about your browser. Think about Chrome or Firefox, or if you're a sociopath, think about Microsoft Edge. You know how when you visit a website, you often see the little lock next to the address? That's to indicate that it's using a secure connection, called HTTPS. That's Hypertext Transport Protocol Secure. Emphasis on the secure. When you're using that, traffic is encrypted and harder to read, and it's the standard for internet browsing these days. However, that wasn't always the case. In the past, sites may have been using unencrypted connections, which were much more prone to being snooped. That's not to say that this was a primary vector here, but I just want to let you know what the landscape looked like, because this malware had been active for several years by the time 2010 came around. And in May of 2010, that's when Google said, hey, start using HTTPS, it's safer, and we'll start deprioritizing standard HTTP sites. So we weren't nearly as protected as we were now. And if something was targeting your banking websites and they weren't up to date, as in the most latest and greatest HTTPS of this point, then you can see why it might have been a little easier to steal data. It's like if you compared what we have right now to a barbed wire fence, back then we had a wooden farm fence that was only good for keeping the cattle in. Not really a whole lot if you've got a creative threat. Okay, so you're probably thinking at home, cool story, John, but what did Zeus actually do? And we'll get to that. But first, let's talk about how it got on your machine and how it stayed there. What I'm about to say shouldn't really surprise anyone, but Zeus was delivered by three primary attack vectors. The first was phishing. You know, someone trying to make you click a link in an email that's meant to look like something you actually should be viewing. And the thing your company sends a simulation out on a couple times a year to make sure that you're actually paying attention to your inbox. The second is just straight spam. This could be spam emails offering explicit goods, or even a spam ad that might launch a pop-up for you to click. And the last primary vector is something that I don't think we've really covered on the show before, and that's a drive-by download. That's to say it's a download that you didn't intend on happening, or maybe didn't even know it happened. It could be something that was launched in the background, included in something else that you might have downloaded, or maybe even installed with software that you were putting on your machine. Have you ever gone to download a random tool that you thought you needed, and when it installed something, it was asking if you had any interest in installing one of a couple other programs as a part of a process? Well, it's possible that this malware might have been one of the things that was trying to sneak its way in while you were clicking next over and over, just trying to get through your install. So now at this point, you've gone ahead and fallen for a spam, clicked on the enticing email, or downloaded Zeus to your machine. What's going to go on next? Well, the original variant of Zeus was very good at hiding itself. In these early iterations, you'd be able to find activity of Zeus if you knew what to look for. 
Essentially, depending on how much admin access the user had that opened it and infected the computer, that would determine where the loot was hidden. If you were a full admin, you could find directories created in the System32 folder on your machine. That System32 folder contains core components to your Windows operating system, and an average user would almost certainly not be able to identify something malicious just by looking at the contents of a folder. Also, on a side note, never trust anyone that tells you to fix the problem that you have by deleting the System32 folder. The malware itself at this point was located in sdra64.exe, and its loot was kept in a folder called LOSEC. That's L-O-W-S-E-C. If you weren't admin, those details wouldn't really change, except in that they would be located in a different directory called the app data directory, which is usually just a hidden directory on your machine, accessible but not inherently visible. So a good place to hide things. Depending on those same capabilities, Zeus would then make some key internal changes to the registry if it could. The target here was to make sure that it started up with those admin privileges, effectively giving it read-write to wherever it wanted and free reign over your entire machine. So now the pirates have arrived, they've dug the hole where they're going to bury the treasure, but where is the chest and what's in it? Let's talk about how it stole your data, because what it did was incredibly sneaky. While some of the targets of Zeus were random in who they were, once it was on your machine, its goal was relatively singular. It looked for financial data. It was looking for targets on your machine that could provide instant value. When it was on your machine, it had a few key capabilities. Those capabilities included its starting process, which would steal credential information from your machine by taking it from your web browser or the internal protected storage that was housed in Windows. From then on out, it would wait until it detected that you were going to a financial website and try to work its magic then. If it detected that you were going to go to a bank site, it might launch one or all of these other capabilities. For example, it might engage a keylogger, making note of everything that you typed, which might inherently include your email, your username, your password, maybe even your bank account numbers. It could take a screenshot whenever it decided that it liked the page that you were on and wanted to see what was happening. And one of the crazier things that it could do, it could alter the page that you were viewing slightly. So, for example, if you were presented with a login for a username and password, what Zeus might present you with now is something new, a page asking you to confirm your password and answer security questions. It's the same page, but with two or three more fields that the attacker can use to gather even more information on you and maintain control of your account. I've got an example of what that looks like on my website, so you can find that at whattheshellpod.com in the transcript of the episode. And when you look at it, I mean, I don't think many people would look at this and see the extra layer of verification as something that was super abnormal. But with it, they've got all the details they need to keep persistence over your own account. So if you've gone to my website and you're looking at this right now, the page looks exactly the same, even going so far as to continue to show a warning about potential fraud and how the bank will never email you directly asking for the above information. Now, one thing that was interesting to me was how Zeus had such trouble being tracked down. After all, antivirus wasn't new at this point. Well, Zeus had this frankly cool ability to re-encrypt itself each time it infected someone. You might think that's not a lot, but what it means is that each time it re-encrypts or reinfects, it technically is slightly different. Different to the point where it evades detection in a lot of cases. It would be like saying, I'm the program and the police are the antivirus, right? 
In this little metaphor, my clothing is the encryption. They've got my last known attire, but every time I leave a building, I change my clothes. They know enough about me to recognize where I am after I've been there, but not enough to identify me before I rob the place, because I keep changing my outer appearance. That's what the re-encryption is doing here, making it harder for antivirus to outright identify and act on it before anything happens. So, Zeus is on your machine, it's gathering this data and storing it, and then it'll stealthily send that information up to a command and control server. That's a server somewhere that the attacker can log into to run commands on the infected machines. And if your brain is starting to tingle a little bit there, like maybe there's something you can do with that little capability, you're right. There is. Because the original person that coded it was really interested in making a profit out of this, it was also used as a botnet. You could rent it out to whatever person or group wanted to use the machines in an attack. So remember again, at the start of this episode in 2010, that's over three and a half million machines infected into the botnet. But you know, that does pose a point. I said whoever coded it wanted to make a profit. But who was that? Who's doing this? Who's behind this big scheme? Well, this particular operation using Zeus that was making headlines was spearheaded by a group of people. Toward the end of 2010, the FBI started to really go full force against whoever was running this whole campaign. That's when they announced that they had dropped a number of arrests in the ring that was responsible here. The group was mainly international, with much of the crew operating out of Eastern Europe. The FBI archive for this arrest said that, quote, with our law enforcement partners in the United States, the United Kingdom, Ukraine, and the Netherlands, we announced the execution of numerous arrests and search warrants in multiple countries in one of the largest cyber criminal cases we've ever investigated. Gordon Snow, the assistant director of the FBI's cyber division, said that, quote, this was a major theft ring. Global criminal activity on this scale is a threat to our financial infrastructure, and it can only be effectively countered for the kind of international cooperation we have seen in this case. I've got the wanted photo of the entire group up on my website as well in the same episode transcript as the other picture, but they made major arrests and found that while they managed to get away with around $70 million like we discussed earlier, the attempted amount, including the dollars that might not have been withdrawn yet or were held up thanks to bank protections, totaled to almost a quarter of a billion US dollars. There's 20 people on this wanted poster, so if each of them got an even split, that's a little over 10 million apiece. They could have had enough to live happily ever after, without a care in the world if they really wanted to. All in all though, not including the Mastermind 20, the FBI detained over 100 people who were charged with conspiracy to perform bank fraud and cash laundering. 90 of them were in the United States and the rest in Europe. This split is because of something that we'll talk about in a little bit. The people who were the money mules. But one person isn't identified yet. The creator. According to Sinet and other sources, this man was named Hamza Bendelash, an Algerian citizen who's had aliases like The Smiling Hacker and BX1. It would take several years with him being involved in the top 10 most wanted hackers by both the FBI and their sister across the pond, Interpol, before he would end up in the United States, where a US court would sentence him to 15 years in prison with three more years of probation. So he was extradited in 2013, charged in 2015, and at this point right now, he's barely over halfway through, at best, serving for this. What's particularly interesting about him is that in 2010, 
several years before his arrest, he took to the internet to say that he was retiring. At that point, he sold the source code of Zeus to one of the competing malware groups, the creator of a spy eye Trojan. I wonder what could have happened in 2010 that made him want to maybe retire. Hmm. But with him, I guess it really was about the money. And I wonder if the kind of under-the-table pension he got from the sale of Zeus was really worth it, or if he wishes he had kept going. Because ultimately, he ended up caught anyways. It wasn't just the FBI or Interpol that helped either. There was a kind of citizen brigade that came in with the assist here. That primary civilian leading the charge was a member of a University of Alabama staff named Gary Warner. Gary, with the help of a vigilante monitoring group that affiliated itself with the FBI called InfraGuard, were able to find some commonalities and in information that led to major developments which tied these hackers to Ukraine. He and the team found the secret sauce of how they got the money out. Because you have to think, even if you transferred it to your own account, there's several problems here. First, the bank knows directly where the money's going. Second, they know who you are and they can just shut the account down and bring the money back. So it was a game of trickery and timing. This group knew that they had to get the money out quick and clean, or at the very least, less dirty. So how did they do it? Well, what they would do is they would use some of the accounts that they'd compromised earlier as kind of transfer accounts. So the process might look something like this. Let's say I'm the head of a hacker group here monitoring an operation. In this operation, we've compromised two accounts, one for Shellpod Inc. and one for Nate Shelley. If I transfer both accounts and their funds to me, then I've got the problem of people knowing who I am and where the money is. So instead, I'm just going to wait. I've got the account details, and while I wait, I'll hire someone in the United States to go withdraw the money from one of the accounts. The added benefit is that the local transactions like this are much less likely to be flagged by the banks because they're not going out of the country. Once they were able to withdraw the cash, they just need to send the money back to me using something like Western Union. And you know what? Since I'm a kind hacker overlord, I'll even give them a 10% commission. So now I can transfer both accounts quickly and have the person stateside withdraw it, then send it to a fake Western Union that I've got over here to avoid suspicion. Who might do that, though? Well, unfortunately, in this case, gullible people and down-on-their-luck individuals. If you remember ever getting spam for working from home and making $3,000 a week doing it, that seemed like it was too good to be true, this could have been one of the things that you would have been doing. Because again, this was back in the late 2000s, early 2010s, and work from home was a less common practice here. So it could have been appealing to many people who didn't want to go out in public. That instance was something that Gary found to be just the first in a line of bigger fraud. The team eventually would upgrade their process instead of hiring just Americans to be the mules, they would supply Eastern European students with fake identities and passports. The goal for these students? Well, they'd go to the US, open a real bank account with fake identification, then wait for it to fill, withdraw it, take the commission, send it back over, and repeat. They would do this over and over and over again. And the added benefit here was that these were real accounts that the attackers controlled and didn't need to worry about the information changing on them. It was a little more static as opposed to dynamic. The students would land a pretty penny out of this. And while some weren't made aware right away that this was illegal, they had to suspect something, right? When sometimes it could go up to $250,000 that was being transferred and you got a $25,000 payout, I have to imagine that some little bell is ringing in the back of your brain. They found the cash mules partly by taking the bank information they could get and Gary would say to his students, 
find these suspected mules as a class project because he's a professor here of cybersecurity and he involved his students quite a bit. So what they would do is they turned it into a game that you and I are pretty familiar with, OSINT, that's open source intelligence. The students were able to track down a lot of these suspected mules just through social media. One of them, well, I've got her picture on my website too, in the transcript, but you can see her actively flaunting the cash withdrawal on her Facebook. She's got a hand of fanned out $100 bills, and I do wonder if this is her cut or a full transfer, but either way, she seems like she's had some idea of what's happening, and it's a pretty funny picture overall. Once this information all caught on, that would lead to the point where the arrests were made in 2010, and the 90 or so stateside individuals that were helping with the operation were detained or arrested. That's not really the end of Zeus, though, but it is where I'm drawing the line on this episode. You see, something else happened besides the arrests that some of you might have been curious about here, and that's the sale of the Zeus malware. Everyone involved in this iteration is effectively taken care of, but they sold it. And with Zeus being sold, doesn't that mean that it could still be out there? And boy howdy, you're right, because there are hundreds of thousands of variants of Zeus out there now. It started spreading like wildfire, even going so far as to make descendants of the Zeus malware that were as notorious, if not more so, than its originator. Malware like Zbot and Game Over Zeus spawned from this, and I'm eventually going to get into a part two on this, where we talk about the generational differences and nuances of the variants, but I wanted to make sure that you all knew that this story isn't over. It's just constantly evolving. So that's it for this week. I'm John Cordes, and thanks for listening to me explain what the shell happened with the mythically insane Zeus malware. If you want to hang out, you can join me and some of our fans in the show's Discord. The link to that and my socials are in the description of the episode. And lastly, there is something else that I wanted to talk to everyone about. You may have noticed that, hey, you know, there's no ads in this show. That's pretty neat. That doesn't mean that the show doesn't cost money to make. So to help offset the cost, I did launch a Patreon. It's as simple as going to patreon.com slash whattheshell. And there's a couple different plans, including a varying level of bonuses. Do you want to just support the show? Maybe you want some Discord flair in the server. Or hell, maybe you even want to commission a mini episode. It's all there, but I'll let you decide if it's worth it. I get it. And speaking of signing up, there's one last thing that I'm going to do before I sign off, and that's thank all the existing patrons for helping me to keep the show running. So thank you, and I apologize on the pronunciation again. So Ben Sweetnam, John, Christian Odegaard, Fjord, Chris Finnick, Ben Markerell, Pseudo, Tyus Ashworth, RKA, FLDX, VUB, which I swear is how it's typed out, and last but not least, the user that's continuing to test out the limit of the characters in his username, quote, I use Pot of Greed to draw free additional cards for my deck. Thank you for supporting the show. It truly means the world to me. I'll see you all in a bit for another episode of What the Shell.